Good afternoon and welcome um, to a much rescheduled lecture. Uh, we're so glad that um, the third time is the charm and that we're going to get to hear the work we've been waiting for for a long time. I'm Ann Browdy, Director of the Women's Studies in Religion Program, and I want to welcome you both on behalf of our program and on behalf of the Center for the Study of World Religions, who is graciously hosting us today. Um, we have one more lecture in our series this year after Laura Prieto's lecture, and that will be on uh, April 25th, Wednesday, and that will be presented by Professor Kimberly Blockett. It is entitled, this is the first time I've ever been confronted with a hashtag in a lecture title. So, and since I'm not, I don't do social media, you have to tell, somebody has to tell me if I'm saying this correctly. Um, do you, you say the hashtag? Okay. Hashtag say, hashtag say her name. The rebellious evangelism of Zilpha Elau, which we're very much looking forward to um, on April 25th. Today, we're um, thrilled to have Laura Prieto speaking to us about her research. Laura is a professor of history at Simmons College, and I have to say she's a historian's historian. It's been wonderful having her in the program this year, um, keeping our standards up on evidence and archival research, um, which she does with her students at Simmons, a few of whom are here today. Um, Laura is the author of a book about women artists entitled In Her Studio, at home in the studio. Um, and then she became involved with a fascinating volume entitled Competing Kingdoms, to which she contributed, which tried to reverse the gaze of the uh, writing about women's missions, to relocate the perspective to the sites to which missionaries were sent, rather than looking from the perspective of the sending country. And that, in turn, inspired the book that uh, she's working on now, which we very much look forward to, which she'll be speaking to you about today. Laura. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for coming. Um, thank you, Anne, for that introduction. Uh, I'm, I wear that historian's historian moniker with pride, um, so I'm glad you say that. Um, and thank you for making the WSRP such a welcoming, productive place. Um, I'd also like to thank the Harvard Divinity School in general, um, Dean David Hempton, for the gift of this year to really launch my book project. Um, I have published pieces related to the topic before, but it's really with um, this fellowship that I've conceived of it as a book of its own. Um, and I want to thank my fellow research associates, um, my colleagues and students here at Harvard for feeding my intellect so richly while I've been here. Um, and especially Tracy Wall, I'm not sure if she's even still here, um, but uh, she supported me on so many levels, including the practical level. Um, she made all the arrangements for today and for the two previous scheduled days that this talk was supposed to take place. Um, when fate conspired against it. As you see, I have evidently not updated, it was probably um, subconscious superstition on my part that I did not update the date on my PowerPoint slides because I was afraid um, some fates might see it and intervene again. Um, I hope it's a talk that has aged well from all these extensions, but you'll be the judge of that. 
Um, this year, um, as Anne said, I've begun writing a book manuscript. Um, my working title is the um, same uh, as, as you might have seen in materials for the WSRP, Bibles and Butterfly Sleeves, Women and Protestant Mission in the Philippines, 1898 to 1940. Um, and in that book, I am tracing the experience of both American and Filipina women at religious missions. I'm especially interested in how these women tried to create a global Christian sisterhood in tension with American imperialism, Filipino nationalism, and church hierarchies that were ultimately male-dominated, even though women had their own grassroots network of missionary societies for support. Um, this book is still very much in progress. I'm presenting only a piece of it in our time today. Um, so I especially look forward to your responses, thoughts, and questions at the conclusion of the lecture. Um, 18 Filipina women graduated from the Harris Memorial Deacon Training School in Manila in 1934. We see them here. Um, school director Margaret Crabtree described the accompanying festivities the class picnic, the graduating exercises in the big church, the large enthusiastic audience, the new dresses, the recitations, music and flowers, the last tender little address of the principal to the class, then the diplomas, and they are no more students but Bible women. The occasion was cause for congratulations and pride, not only for the students but for the mission itself. Their graduation provided evidence of how women had made disciples in the Philippines and how Filipina women would go forth to make more. Wielding Bibles and diplomas, they look ready to take their place in what biblical scholar Charles A. Briggs of the Union Seminary called the army of evangelists. Their part of the past is challenging to recapture. The archival record on which historians rely does not include everything that happens, much less what was thought and felt. Most voices are missing from it. Historians of women and of colonized people are especially aware of this. Even when documents are created, they do not necessarily endure. Almost all the papers of the Women's Bible School in San Fernando, for example, burned along with the school buildings during bombardments in World War II. But missions were more than in and out sites of religious conversion. Mission activities, networks, and institutions nurtured religious identity. And within that larger community in the Philippines as elsewhere, there were separate women's spaces, women's schools, hospitals, and dormitories. This school, like ours and the mission around it, was a living community. These women had relationships to each other, to their alma mater, to their instructors. These relationships continued past the moment of graduation, leaving traces and consequences for us to recover. This afternoon, I will be discussing in particular the women's Bible schools that American women missionaries founded in the Philippines. I argue that these schools embodied a gendered ethos and theory of missions, and that they cultivated Filipina women's religious leadership. Unlike other kinds of colonial education, they aimed to foster bonds of Christian sisterhood with and among Filipina women. Because of this goal, they were culturally hybrid spaces where national and racial differences were minimized, where language and styles of dress were fluid, and where responsibility for teaching and learning was shared. 
For Filipina women, the schools offered several opportunities, not only to gain an education and deepen their faith, but to evangelize others. Becoming a Bible woman could be transformative for them, as it had been for their American women teachers. Inocencia Baran, for instance, came to Harris as a staunch Catholic. She agreed to attend the school only to please her father, a recent Protestant convert. As a fellow missionary described, quote, through the influence of the students, the atmosphere of the house, and the daily study of the Bible in class, together with the lives and teaching of her teachers, Baran came to see life and religion in a different way. She returned to her home province as a Methodist deaconess, led a religious revival, and successfully raised funds village to village to build a chapel. Harris School meant to train women for such work. Other Bible women, other Bible school alumni, excuse me, served as teachers, nurses, social workers, translators, and even preachers in an, area, in an era when women preachers were exceedingly rare. The history of Christian missions is as long as the history of Christianity itself. From its inception, the church took up what is known as the Great Commission, According to the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus' last instruction to his followers was to go and make disciples of all the nations. After hundreds of years during which men dominated missionary work, American women in the 19th century built what historian Dana Robert calls a women's missionary movement. These women argued that they made a special indispensable contribution to missions by ministering to other women. They called this woman's work for woman. In converting mothers, they hoped to Christianize the next generation. More radically, through educating women and tending to their medical needs, they hoped to lift the female sex out of degradation and social inferiority around the world. And here we see an illustration of um, the original ethos, uh, and you can see how hierarchical it is. Um, we can talk about that later if you like. Um, by 1900, over 40 denominational women's missionary societies existed, with three million active members, um, some despite sustained hostility from the men of their churches. These women constituted a clear numerical majority within the American mission force. Their work transformed missionary women and their communities at home, as Dana Robert and very recently David Hollinger have shown. There were, of course, also immense consequences for the receiving cultures, the populations whom missionaries aimed to convert. Not pictured here. In recent years, scholars of missions have begun to turn their attention to these, though their trace in the archives is more faint than the missionaries' point of view. Indigenous converts were not simply passive recipients, after all, but like the Harris alumni, active partners in missionary work. Indeed, American women's missionary societies supported almost triple the number of native Bible women as they did American women in the field. Named for the holy book she carried and distributed, a Bible woman's activities were remarkably consistent, transnationally and across Protestant denominations. She did house-to-house -house visiting, conducted relief work, taught women to read, led Sunday school, ministered to the sick, and went on longer journeys to evangelize surrounding areas. This work was grounded in women's roles, in family and the community, but it was not in essence domestic. Her mobility over often large distances linked her to congregations and potential converts, not to a particular household. 
And as Ella Shaw noted in 1915, Bible women often advised Euro-American missionaries. They were very much like the American women who had trained them, except that they could go further afield and do more. The proportion of native missionaries, male and female, increased with time until these indigenous leaders had complete responsibility for their churches and American missionaries left religious work in their hands. This evolution from receiving to sending culture was the very purpose of missions. And in this way, indigenous women carried woman's work for woman forward to their sisters at home and then in other nations. Preparation for this making of disciples was not only a matter of religious faith, but of education. Specific training that necessarily encompassed both American and Filipina women. Their expectations and experiences intersected at mission schools where Filipina women became deaconesses and Bible women. The very prospect of attending school attracted potential converts to Protestant missions. Historically, Filipina women had had little access to formal education. Under Spanish rule, provincial parochial schools typically admitted both boys and girls. But even after some reform and expansion finally occurred in the mid to late 19th century, the underfunded Spanish system reached only very small numbers of Filipino children. And girls in particular were at a disadvantage. In 1900, only 30% of men and 10% of women in the Philippines were literate. A Filipina woman fortunate enough to gain literacy and ambitious enough to seek further education found very few options open to her. Elite families might send their sons abroad for education, but not their daughters. Religious orders admitted very few Filipina women and limited their status to that of domestic helper. Though a small number of normal schools opened in the late 19th century, they graduated a total of only about 1,000 women, and this is in a population of about 7 million. Thus, even urban women of the wealthier classes had no realistic options for higher learning and no profession besides teaching for which they could prepare. The United States took possession of the Philippines from Spain in 1899, even though the Filipino people, as you might know, had been fighting against Spain for their independence. Contemporary political cartoons like this one reveal the racist ideologies that suffused American imperialism. An expansion of public education became a cornerstone of America's self-proclaimed benevolent brand of imperialism. The Federal Commissioner of Education proudly reported that, quote, throughout the archipelago, the schoolhouse follows the flag. He could as well have said that the schoolhouse followed the army since the United States military planted the first schools in its wake as it put down anti-colonial Filipino insurgents. This was a decidedly colonial education, formal tutelage meant to uplift, Christianize, and civilize the Filipino, eventually paving the way for self-government, though when that would be remained at the discretion of the American colonial state. The federal government built over 4,000 public schools in the Philippines by 1910, including primary schools, industrial schools, and one high school per province. Enrollment reached almost a million by 1920, even though this did not meet the demand. The system left a decidedly mixed legacy. Instruction took place in English. 
Many of the schools emphasized vocational education on the model of Hampton Institute in Virginia and Tuskegee in Alabama, schools that not coincidentally served African Americans and Native Americans, that is, racialized, disfranchised others like Filipinos. At the same time, the colonial government founded institutions of higher learning. The University of the Philippines, 1908, was open to all, regardless of, quote, age, sex, nationality, religious belief, or political affiliation. And United States policies opened the professions, law, medicine, journalism, and others, to Filipina women for the first time. Although the American schools did not explicitly encourage sexual equality, the new education prepared native-born women for respectable professions and a chance of upward economic mobility. The mostly Catholic mestizo elite, the ilustrado class, benefited the most. Bible women's training schools in the Philippines built upon this colonial education as implanted by the US. They drew from two other models as well. The schools that American missionary women had developed elsewhere, especially in Asia, and the schools that American missionary women had themselves attended in the United States. For half a century already, American women missionaries had emphasized education as part of the woman's work for woman that I mentioned earlier. Literacy facilitated conversion by enabling women to read the Bible. And according to civilizing mission theory, quote, a people must be civilized or rather westernized before it can become truly Christian. But missionary women also regarded women's education as a valuable end unto itself. In their eyes, education was necessary for social progress. And it was a tool that women could use against their subordination, regardless of religious faith. Little surprise then that the United States Women's Missionary Movement founded some 3,000 schools around the world by the turn of the 20th century. Some provided basic instruction for girls and women, some focused on vocational education. But missionary organizations also founded women's colleges in India, Korea, and Japan, and also provided more specific advanced training for Bible women. By the 1920s, there were 53 Bible training schools for women in China alone. These Bible women's schools abroad drew in turn from women missionaries' own educational experiences in the United States. Excluded as a rule from theological seminaries, lay women turned to alternative kinds of religious education that emerged in the late 19th century. These sorts of institutions were usually called Bible training schools. Most stateside women's Bible training schools were directed by women and began with a handful of students in small homes with low, if not free, tuition and boarding rates. All of them privileged training for missionary service. About a third were co-educational, but most were exclusively for women. And this helps explain how women became the majority of missionaries, as I, I noted before. Um, Bible training formed part of the rising demand for professional education for women, like domestic science, um, and it usually served as an alternative to college, which remained out of most Americans' financial reach. Between 1903 and 1920, American missionaries established six Bible training schools for women in the Philippines. The first two, Harris Memorial Deacon Deaconess Training School, which was Methodist Episcopalian, and Ellenwood Bible School, which was Presbyterian, um, were in Manila. I'm sorry, I don't think I have a flashy pointer, um, but I'll walk up.
um, Manila was the Philippines' colonial capital under the Spanish, um, uh, had been since the late 16th century. And the U.S. established its capital there, too, initiating a massive project in urban planning to modernize, sanitize, Americanize, and expand the city. Um, so it makes sense that missionaries would first target Manila. Um, other women's Bible schools soon followed elsewhere in the archipelago. Um, a second Methodist school opened in Lingayen, drawing mainly older, middle-aged um, women. That's just to the north of Manila. Um, the Baptist Missionary Training School in Iloilo became the first and only such institution in the Visayas. And in 1910, the Women's Missionary Association of the United Brethren in Christ founded their own school near the summer capital of Baguio. Cagayan Woman Bibles Training School Congregationalist, the last of the six, began in Mindanao, the southernmost island group, in 1919. The first and most prestigious of these schools was Harris Memorial, um, a major project of the Methodist Episcopal Women's Foreign Mission Society. The school opened in 1903, so just four years after the Philippines became a U.S. possession. It prepared Filipino women to be deaconesses. Um, a deaconess was, is a consecrated lay woman who conducts a range of religious work, ministering primarily to other women. She drew no salary, wore a uniform, and remained unmarried. The founding director of Harris, Winifred Spaulding, was herself a deaconess. She had been a superintendent of a Bible and training school in Kansas City. Um, and as some of you know, the Methodist Episcopal Church had approved the training and licensing of deaconesses in 1888. Um, so this office of deaconess revived an older tradition, large, uh, largely with the needs of the mission field in mind. Like their American analogs, the women's Bible training schools in the Philippines invariably began in modest rented quarters. The San Fernando School, for example, first occupied a bamboo building with a grass roof. That's not what's pictured here. Um, and undesirable neighbors, as they put it, being situated between the provincial jail and a stable of 50 or 60 horses. It took 10 years and intense fundraising to construct a new building, which you do see here, um, two stories tall of reinforced concrete with a tile roof and verandas on all sides, on a hill overlooking the town and sea. Narratives of architectural progress, along with growth in enrollments, of course, frequently figure in mission reports, um, like this pair of um, before and after photos of Lingayen, which was later renamed the Townsend Memorial Bible Women's Training School. The transformation of its physical space over time mirrored the transformation of spirit, mind, and body that the school hoped to affect in its students. A three or four year course of study turned students into consecrated workers who would lead the evangelization of their communities. Bible study in the vernacular, um, not the original languages, was of course central along with theology and church history. Students learned about inspirational figures, not only American women like Isabella Thoburn, but also indigenous missionaries like Pandita Ramabai of India. The curriculum, which I don't think you'll be able to read very well from the seats, I apologize. Um, You'll have to trust me. Integrated practical education and the liberal arts and sciences, just as women's missionary training schools did in the continental United States. At Lingayen and other schools, Bible women's education included the history of missions, the church's institutional organization, and comparative religions. 
at Cagayan, English sociology and psychology classes aimed to develop independence of thought and action. And that's a quote. The students at Harris cherished their sociology course for just that reason. Quote, because they could better express their ideas after taking it, as their teacher, Prudencia Fabro, reported. Even more radically, Harris taught Filipino literature, including the fiery anti-colonial novel, Social Cancer, by iconic nationalist writer, Jose Rizal. Okay, it was an anti-Spanish novel, but it was anti-colonial nevertheless. I'm sorry? Uh, Social Cancer is the translation in English. Um, actual field work, such as teaching Sunday school and junior league, was a consistent component of the programs. The staff of Harris thought of Manila as a, quote, wonderful laboratory, close quote, in this regard. Music instruction, thought essential to appeal to potential congregants, included piano, organ, and choral singing. Schools expected Bible students to assist at mission hospitals and clinics, in support of which they took classes in nursing, anatomy, obstetrics, and sanitation. Housework was likewise both a theoretical subject, domestic science, and an applied one in cooking and sewing, deeply connected to the idea of a Christian home. In the words of missionary Marion Wells Woodward, such an education aimed, quote, to transform the home and best of all, transform the life. Extracurricular expectations included devotion, prayer, and testimonial meetings, as well as athletics, baseball, basketball, volleyball, and theatricals. And, quote, plain girl fun, like singing and joking while doing the laundry. I'm not personally experienced in that, but I <laughs> believe that they did so. I'm sorry? Uh, I'm not personally experienced in singing and joking while doing the laundry, but... Good for them. Um, if you have to do the laundry, you might as well. Um, in their final year, students received direct instruction and experience in personal evangelism and homiletics, that is preaching and writing sermons. So they're being trained to preach and write sermons. Um, Antonina Vela, a Filipina woman, was teaching homiletics at the Townsend School by 1930. She reflected on how, quote, essential preaching would be to her students' future work as Bible women. Quote, may these girls help in the great task of making the name of God known to all, she prayed. In all these respects, the women's Bible schools mirrored women's missionary training within the U.S. Bible women's education in the Philippines diverged from its American counterpart in some ways, however. Perhaps most surprisingly, at least to me, it did not exhibit the increasing racial segregation of the continental U.S., for example, Moody Bible School Institute in Chicago instituted new racial restrictions in this same period, that is in 1909, excluding students of color in hopes of attracting more quote-unquote respectable white Southerners. Scholars have thoroughly documented how the U.S. brought American racism to its colonial possessions, including the Philippines, so it's not a question of context um, that made race less prominent at these schools. Um, Certainly, missions were not impervious to racism, but their goal of indigenization, that is turning over the, the um, comportment and the leadership of these schools to indigenous peoples, um, that required inclusion rather than exclusion or segregation. And although American Protestants found it easiest to work with the mostly Spanish-speaking, mostly Catholic mestizos, they did not limit their efforts to the elite. 
Their hope of reaching and converting a diverse population demanded certain adaptations by missionaries to a range of local cultures. For instance, um, learning indigenous languages was a priority for American women missionaries. And in sharp contrast to US public schools in the Philippines, English was not taught as a discrete subject at the Bible schools, nor was it the main language of instruction. Missionaries did not regard English as necessary to conversion or to understanding Christianity. At Lingayen, in fact, classes were taught in English and in three local languages, Ilocano, Pangasinan, and Tagalog. The need for translators meant that Filipino women assisted in the Bible school classrooms from the very beginning. Filipino women also quickly and increasingly became the principal teachers. Some took charge of the more vocational and applied instruction. Um, some, as I've already implied regarding homiletics, took responsibility for theology and for academic subjects. For example, um, Mary Rebollido taught church history to the juniors and seniors, religious literature to the freshmen and beginners, and Sunday school methods to the entire school. Isabel Mandig started teaching Christian doctrine at the Carruth Bible School even before she graduated in 1924. She went on to organize her own Visayan language woman's Bible class, and the majority of her students became members of the church. Um, what women missionaries chose to wear, I don't know if you've been taking note of that as you watch my slides, um, but I want to address that now, uh, asserted and projected these different identities in their photographs, at public moments like graduation, and in the everyday. American women traditionally wore white gowns in graduation photos and other formal public occasions, signaling their femininity and purity. So here's a couple of, of examples from the continental US of how this might happen. Um, very standard um, uh, school for girls, Michigan 1934. Um, also National Training School um, for African American women and girls in Washington DC use this convention. Um, well, looking back at the Harris graduation photo that I began with, um, the Filipina students adapted this white gown into a native idiom. The elegant terno uh, that they're wearing was a dress associated with Filipina women who sought advanced education, entered the professions, claimed a place in the public sphere, and engaged in social and political activism. It's known as um, the style of dress that both uh, uh, beauty queens, beauty pageant queens um, in Manila War, as well as suffragists. Um, though it mirrored a European silhouette, even its Western elements did not trace back to the US, the current colonizer, um, but were rather an indigenized Spanish fashion, the um, camisa and saya that Filipina women wore earlier in the 19th century. The terno and um, Traje de mestizo, um, which is the separate, uh, separate patterns, um, shirt and skirt is called traje de mestizo, um, also incorporated distinctive Filipino materials, um, most strikingly in the uh, pineapple cloth, the piña cloth, that, uh, an indigenous fabric that was used to make the stiff diaphanous sleeves. Through its Filipino elements, the terno then connoted support for Filipino sovereignty, again, during American colonization. Filipina women chose to wear the terno in public to signal their cultural pride. As in other nationalist movements, women became the bearers of culture while their male counterparts adopted Western suits. 
This style of dress thus marked Filipina women both as modern and as nationals. Um, and I want to also footnote uh, that mission and school records often refer to Filipino teachers as nationals, um, which I find an, a, perhaps a tacit recognition that Filipinos had a nation of their own many years before the U.S. actually granted the Philippines independence. It's, it's perhaps a sign of the ambivalence that many missionaries felt about their relationship to the colonial state, something else we might talk about later. <clears throat> um, at the same time, there was no expectation that Filipino women at missions had to wear Filipino clothing. It was not you know, dictated to them as any kind of racial or national marker. Um, in this group, for example, you see um, uh, the Filipino woman um, who is second from the left um, wearing pretty much the same, I think it's probably made from the same pattern dress um, as the American woman missionary Isabel Fox um, on the, the far left. Um, American clothing was not a requirement of their civilization and conversion any more than the English language was. Their choice of dress was fluid, and Filipina women sometimes elected to wear American styles. Um, and you see a, a, a mix of the nursing uniform, something else we could talk about um, at much greater length, is another American style, in a sense, that appears in a lot of these photos. Um, and sometimes, on formal occasions, um, the American teachers wore ternos. Um, it's another example of this. Um, this is surprising, um, not because white women did not wear exotic costumes at home and abroad in this period. They, they did. They dressed in kimonos and other Orientalist fashions. Um, the spectacle of a white woman in Oriental dress testifies to the exoticization and commodification of the East and to the transnational circulation of material goods, especially along the roots of imperialism and colonization. But the context of US imperialism suffused this specific Filipino garment of the Terno with political meaning that um, the kimono, for example, did not have for Americans. Um, wearing it indicated some level of support for Filipino autonomy, a rejection of American assimilation, a claim to modernity and sophistication on Filipino terms. It is difficult to imagine that American missionary women wore ternos as public advocacy of Filipino independence. Nevertheless, their choice to wear the terno in public and in photographs like these, I'd argue, implies an affinity or allegiance with Filipina new women, their teacher, their, their students, excuse me, and their, their partners, their colleagues. It signaled that a cosmopolitan Christian womanhood could draw from many cultures. It asserted that a shared Christian sisterhood could traverse national lives. The fact that sometimes Filipino women gave these ternos to their American teachers suggests they were inviting those feelings of transnational sisterhood. The gift of a terno showed there was a place for American women within Filipino culture. So what became of these exchanges and adaptations? Um, to what degree did Bible women's lives after graduation follow the path that their training anticipated? And did they carry forward this missionary ethos of women's work for women? This is clearly a larger question than we have time for today, but um, I'd like to end with a brief glimpse and some preliminary answers to those questions. Sorry, I forgot Mildred Blakely. Sorry, Mildred. Um, <laughs> That was the foggiest picture anyway. Um, 
1923, the Townsend School published a retrospective booklet reflecting on its history to that point. Um, this is part of the promotional literature that, that I work a lot with. Um, it concluded the booklet with three photographs representing the paths that its alumni took. First came a pair, seen here, depicting the intrepid work of evangelizing far beyond the mission station and a Bible institute. Um, an institute was a multi-day gathering for intense instruction, a very time-efficient method to share the religious studies of the women's Bible training schools with a larger group, especially of women and girls. This work, individual itinerant evangelizing or collective work of the institute, reflected the work of their American missionary sisters. And Filipina women certainly undertook it. Um, some returned to their hometowns after graduation, while others journeyed to distant areas to spread the gospel. This evangelism did not depend on the companionship or tutelage of a United States missionary. The native deaconesses, district nurses, and Bible women in Pangasinan and Tarlac, for example, took on the responsibility for the spiritual life of 850,000 people, um, a district of 5,000 square miles, all on their own. A Filipina Bible woman shepherded the substantial congregation at Buena Vista, which was without a regular pastor. And soon the schools were receiving requests for regular Filipina Bible women and deaconesses from Filipino churches. Most strikingly, a number of Filipinas became preachers in their own right. In this, they exceeded the possibilities that were practically open to their American women counterparts. The periodical women's work reported on the electric effect of one Bible woman named Catalina. In one of the Iloilo villages, um, Catalina had been instrumental in bringing many to the Savior, she being the maestra or village teacher and a woman of great influence. Recognizing the advantage of such influence, a class had been instituted for women, and in every village, as far as convenient, some bright young woman has been selected to receive this special instruction. Um, this uh, uh, path-breaking work aside, a third and very different image concluded the Townsend booklet, um, which invites some thinking. Um, United in Service pictured an alternative aftermath to conversion, study, and consecration, the wedding of an indigenous Christian bride and groom. Certainly a belief in Christian women's influence as wives and mothers was a cornerstone of women's work for women. The image of a newlywed couple suggests a future fruitfulness, perhaps parallel to evangelizing throughout the district or at a Bible institute. Um, motherhood was, after all, another way to make disciples. And indeed, a majority of Townsend alumni did marry after a few years' service as Bible women, if not immediately. Filipina women faced multiple pressures to marry, not only from their families and communities, but also from Protestant churches, who wanted female converts to wed male converts, be fruitful, and multiply. Indigenous pastors especially were perceived to need wives. The missionary women who directed and taught in the Bible training schools had, however, chosen to remain single. And they did all they could to encourage Filipina women to do the same, to make converts, excuse me, to make disciples through conversion rather than maternity. In their vision, single women served other women and the community in distinct and essential ways. They exalted the authority that Bible women could have. Quote, the graduate going back to her town or province finds herself the center of attraction and all the activities of the community, wrote a Harris teacher. She's perhaps trying very hard to be persuasive. Um, 
She towers head and shoulders above the humble folk of the town and becomes their judge, doctor, nurse, preacher, and teacher. It gets better. All things are submitted to her, and her counsel usually prevails. Who, who can give that up for marriage, right? Um, still, the American women missionaries struggled to find good in their former students' decisions to marry. Um, which inevitably happened. There seemed consolation in the thought that as pastor's wives, at least, Filipinas could continue missionary work in some sense, and they did. Um, from Filipina women's perspective, marrying a fellow convert, especially a preacher, may have seemed to offer a middle path, a way to integrate domesticity with the missionary work to which they had committed themselves. Julia de Soto Yapsutko, for one, remained an active Bible woman throughout her life. She inspired her husband's conversion, taught the Bible, and became a preacher after her husband's death. She edited, she edited Angdalan, The Way, a religious weekly newspaper in Visayan, no, not in English, and she spent many years helping to translate the Bible into Visayan. Mrs. Yapsutko eventually became a pastor of the United Evangelical Church of the Philippines in Iligan. Her church had a congregation of about 100 both American and Filipino congregants. She became then, like the Women's Board of, Women, of Mission Workers, a woman with other women's concerns at heart, but not limited to the domestic circle. The consideration of women as missionaries thus complicates, I hope, complicates our understanding of mission history, sisterhood, and imperialism alike. As Dana Robert writes, in the area of evangelism, one sees the fullest and earliest practice of partnership between indigenous and, Eastern, and Western women. The case of the early 20th century Philippines supports this view. Gender ideology led to shared ideals, shared institutions, and shared constraints upon American and Filipina women. At the same time, we need to be mindful of the complexities, contradictions, diversities, and inconsistencies in women missionaries' lived experiences. Scholar Marilanina Sebastian warns that, quote, it is easy either to idealize the work of the Bible women or to deny their agency by regarding them as mere mimics of Western women. Above all, we must not take the ideal of Christian sisterhood at face value. Sisterhood at Philippines missions, as everywhere, had its limits. It proved more exclusionary in practice than in theory. Too often, Filipina women's names are omitted from mission narratives and photo captions, implying that they did not matter as individuals in the way that American women did. Um, and you might have noted that in some of my captions for the slides, um, and also how I have to substitute um, photos of one woman for another because they are not as well documented um, in the archives as the American women. The title of native helper persisted, which was hardly an implication of equality. Um, the title of missionary, even though the women were doing missionary work, was not always granted um, to Filipina women. The relationship of American teacher to Filipina student was itself hierarchical. The mission's transition to Filipina leadership happened gradually, and not every mission allowed Bible women such responsibilities and autonomy. White American women continued as the official school directors long after their teaching staff had diversified. One training school, the Baptist School at Haro, actually closed during its American founders' furlough rather than leave things in the hands of Filipina alumni. Nor did Filipina women unseat American missionaries or male missionaries at the top of the church hierarchy. 
Although over time, Filipino men became Methodist district supervisors, for example, women never served in those positions. We would do best then to reframe um, this commission to make disciples, to recognize how Filipino women were not made followers of Christ by others, but became disciples through their own initiative. They agreed to work as partners with American missionaries. They were not given but gained positions of importance within the schools and hospitals, the church-based work and itinerant evangelism that women's missionary organizations supported. Like Silveria Lucas, they knew that they were, quote, indispensable, her word, to the nascent indigenous church. And they carried forward women's work for women as they and their American sisters envisioned. Lucas herself followed a year as acting principal of the Harris School by embarking as a foreign missionary to Hawaii. Although their preparation for ministry unfolded in the context of imperialism, Bible women's education did not insist upon acculturation to the same degree as the colonial state. Filipina and American missionary women constructed a shared Christian identity that was broad enough to encompass cultural differences and exchanges. As they claimed a role in religious service and leadership in national life and independence, Filipina women were able to deploy this cosmopolitan Christian womanhood for their own spiritual and sexual and secular, excuse me, different, different paper, um, uh, their own spiritual and secular aspirations. Thank you. Oh, I'd be glad to. Yes. So I, I, I need a little bit of context to this. Um, okay. Yeah, this conversion uh, or the crossroads to this. First of all, when these people converted from indigenous states, they were converting from Catholicism. And whatever it was, what were the reasons for their dissatisfaction with the faith in which I guess they'd grown up? Right. That would have motivated them to convert. Right. Um, excellent question. Thank you. Um, so I guess I should still use Mike. Um, which keeps me rooted here. Um, so um, the, the previous missions to the Philippines, so um, as I suggested here, it's, it's US colonization that really opened this field to Protestant missionaries. They did not have a previous presence um, in the Philippines. But as you, as you may know, um, under Spanish rule, um, there were efforts at um, evangelization by by Catholic um, friars. Um, so there was a substantial percentage of the population that was already Catholic um, in the Philippines. It's maybe not as great as we might think, and it's actually um, a smaller percentage than it is today. Um, so even among the Tagalog, uh, there are many, many ethnicities within the Philippines, um, but the, the ones who were most apt to be Catholic um, and to acculturate to Spanish um, language and customs uh, were Tagalog um, elite. And even there, the numbers I've seen is maybe about 50%. So um, we're talking about, you know, under 300,000 um, people um, are Catholic or consider themselves to be Catholic. Um, the Protestant missionaries didn't consider Catholics to be Christians. Um, they, uh, there's a, a lot of conversation in the mission archives about um, how it might be easier to convert um, Catholics to Protestantism because they have some familiarity with the Bible, with some of the theological concepts. Um, 
And that might be one reason why so much mission activity was centered around um, Manila and with the um, Tagalog population. Um, but I think it was also convenience to be near the colonial state um, and away from guerrilla uh, anti-colonial activism, for instance. Um, uh, I don't have numbers on what religions most um, of the converts were coming from. There's a remarkable lack of interest in documenting that by the missionaries. They kind of pool everybody together as superstitious. Um, but I would note that in um, Manila was, a, 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 well, the Philippines in general, but Manila was a very transnational um, city that had had a lot of immigration from many areas before. There was a substantial Chinese population, um, right? So the Methodists talk about doing Chinese work within the city. Um, they don't say Buddhism, but we can fill that in. And um, there were great dreams of being able to make converts in the Visayas and in Mindanao, which were strongly um, Muslim, uh, as well as animists throughout. So I'd say it was um, a really rich, diverse set of religions um, that at least were being targeted. And I can, it's hard to know from names of converts. Some of them have Hispanicized last names, but many of them do not. So I would suspect, again, it, it was it was a, a, a mix. Um, the And short answer to the other part of the rest of your question, um, there would have been some motivation to convert from Catholicism or at least to establish indigenous churches because, again, of the association between Catholicism and the Spanish colonial state. Um, a lot of the Filipino nationalist movement was very critical of the friars and of um, Spanish clergy. Um, and there's uh, the, the novel I mentioned, Social Cancer, right? Jose Rizal is, is a great example of that. Um, and so there's, in this same period, a great interest among educated Filipino people in anthropology and sociology and trying to recapture their own um, traditions apart from the Spanish. They often want to trace themselves to um, Malay um, people um, and to revive uh, earlier religious beliefs. Um, but uh, yeah, does that, does that well, yeah, answer? I said, what was the draw of Methodism? I understand the draw of the, uh, the Softenist religions, but. The draw of Methodism in yeah. particular, um, which was the largest. Well, I mean, it was. Yeah, Protestantism in general and um, Methodism was um, not only the most, um, is powerful the wrong word to use, um, uh, the most prominent um, denomination in the US at the time and it was the most prominent and visible um, missionary um, presence among Protestants in the Philippines. Um, for, for women specifically, I'd say this um, prospect of becoming a deaconess, of being recognized as a religious leader within the church, um, probably had a lot of appeal. It's something that wasn't possible under the Catholic faith. Um, uh, so I think that is a piece of it. Um, I think there is dissatisfaction with um, the colonial state and this idea of an international, internationalism was gaining currency uh, among missionaries as, as a perspective. Um, but then there are things that, um, if you read what the Filipino women themselves wrote within missionary magazines and annual reports, um, they don't attribute any of their motivations to the secular. Um, so I think we also need to listen to them that they felt a conversion of faith um, and that they felt this religion represented the truth for them. Um, so I think it's important to note that too, that the terms in which they would have explained their conversion were purely spiritual. 
that being exposed to this alternative belief system, they found to be true for themselves. Um, and that is mostly the way that they themselves address it. Um, a little bit further on that question. Yes. Do you have any idea of retention? Did these women keep this faith, or did they go back to their other ways of living? Or is there any way of noticing that? Because I, it doesn't sound like they had too many alternatives to come to this place. And I, I agree that they, I mean, I, I guess they certainly could be sincere, but mm. you know, was did they keep this? Did they actually become that? general involved in the various churches? Um, yeah, that is really hard to um, trace. Uh, as I said, looking at, um, there, are there are some good statistics. Harris, in particular, the most prominent of the schools, tried to keep in touch with their alumni. They early on um, organized an alumni association um, and sent out questionnaires and tried to track what their alumni were doing. Um, some of that, I think, is tied to that disappointment that um, their graduates did not remain single Bible women in the field for as long as their teachers had wanted them to. But um, uh, they tried to circumvent that challenge of distance and name changes upon marriage and all that by, by keeping the, the close ties. Um, and um, there, I'd say there was, I can't give you a firm percentage, and I, I don't think it's a scientific sample anyway, but a, a large number of um, Harris alumni did um, continue contact with the school, keep reporting back, and were seen as um, paragons of, of Methodism out in the field. Um, again, even uh, the, the statistic today is about 10% of the Philippines um, is, is Protestant. Um, so that implies there was continuity. Um, most of all, though, I'd say that a lot of these institutions persisted um, after uh, indigenization and after Filipino independence. Um, Harris uh, Memorial Bible Training School is now a college. Um, some of them converted to um, universities for women. Um, Johnston Hospital, which is, uh, I didn't talk about today, but is a, uh, was a hospital run by all female staff um, to provide free care, specializing in obstetrics and gynecology, um, continues in the Tondo district of Manila um, and is a, a thriving hospital still dedicated to that, that work with the poor. Um, so there, there is that. And some of the schools, as I suggested at the beginning, um, were literally destroyed in World War II. But the ones that survived physically seem to have survived as institutions. And I think, um, again, that's a really strong indication um, that there's a legacy of, of this work. Um, that, that preoccupation with conversions and whether they're sincere is, is a through line in uh, the history of missions. I've been teaching a seminar this semester and we have seen it repeated from the 17th century to the present and you know, how can you tell a conversion is sincere and how do we count it? Um, but uh, those conversions weren't the only, and maybe not even the main way that these women's missionary societies marked their success. Um, they really wanted to transform um, women's lives, and I dare say um, empower women in the Philippines. So I think they would have claimed great success that went beyond the number of converts, um, and that you know, is, recidivism would have been irrelevant. They would have claimed that success anyway. Um, given the transformation in women's roles. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Hi. Thank you so much for a fascinating talk. Thank you. Um, so 
So my question, I was thinking in terms of um, one of the ideas that I, that I took from, from your uh, presentation, which is that if this is a kind of a relatively a space of less acculturation than the practices of the colonial state. Yeah. So I was interested to hear what those practices were in your particular context, because um, I, I guess I'm thinking, I was thinking throughout the talk that in a sense, that's the way in which the, at least other colonial states that I'm familiar with mm. govern writ large the, through indirect rule and true, right? So yeah. I was wondering, perhaps in this particular context, what is the what are the other practices that are going on that look so different in terms of allowing for the expression of certain indigeneity and, and so on. So what are the different practices within so the missions? In the, in the, so in the co particular mm. context, no, 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 outside no. of the missions. Oh, outside of the missions. So in the particular context that you are. Mm. Describing how was the mission different, a differently colonially governed space. Yes, right? yes, yes. A different mode of colonial governance. Understood. Than outside, because I, I heard that implicit in your argument. Yes. Outside. Yes. So what was what what did the Philippines, uh, the colonial state in the Philippines look like? I guess is my question. Right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, good question. The there there are some um, parallels or even overlap um, because. While the U.S. while the U.S. directly governed as the colonial state in the Philippines, unlike maybe some other places, you're thinking, you know, unlike India, unlike we can name a lot of other places that didn't quite work that way. Um, there was direct rule by the U.S. Um, and a very strong military presence by the U.S. from 1899. Mm -hmm. um, there was at the same time, rhetorically and in reality, this idea that. Uh, colonialism was from the beginning a temporary state and that it was this period of tutelage and that Filipinos when they were ready for independence would be given uh, and I do emphasize the passive voice like would be given independence um, by the by the US um, I'd say it's really the terms of um, that granting of independence that show where the colonial state was different um, there is, uh, I could go back to the, even the McKinley slide, uh, yeah, right? I, I um, speaking, I that which, uh, I think also that particular image, um, connotes baptism, mm -hmm. um, Christianity, uh, Christianization was part of the program. Um, so was Americanization. Um, in the back, uh, the, the two younger fellows are um, supposed to be Cuba and Puerto Rico, who are um, putting on very patriotic clothing. Um, the insistence on using English language um, is part of it. Um, and uh, I'm planning to do some, some more work on this, but from what I've seen, the US Civil Service, um, for example, did not make room for women within it, the way that missions made room for women in leadership positions. Right. Um, they employed Filipina women as teachers in the public school system, but that was the extent of that. Um, and the Constitution didn't follow the flag as they set it. So um, the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920 did not extend suffrage to Filipina women. Um, they had to gain it through a separate legislative process, and that didn't happen until 1936. Um, so looked at from 
I guess a general point of view, the insistence on assimilation to American forms of government, to American systems of education, um, uh, to English language, like all those were prerequisites for independence. Um, and if we add the gender component, um, there are exclusions based on gender and race that I think really mark colonial policy on the part of the state that um, I don't see manifest. They influence missionary thinking, but they are not um, constitutive um, in the way that missionaries are conceiving of themselves as having an international or transnational identity based on their religion. Um, and also that the women are conceiving of this, you know, international, this, this global Christian sisterhood that um, uh, makes the possibility for partnership um, a lot more imaginable than what I've seen in the colonial state. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I hope it's okay to turn back to the hospitals, but yeah. I was curious the kind of differences in the nurse training schools, mm -hmm. for example, if there was or if there was, if Filipino women sort of took charge of that, and if, if any Filipino women were sent to the U.S. for medical school, or if any Filipino women actually became doctors, do you see a similar kind of equality in those situations as well as in the Bible schools? Um, uh, yes, I mean, equality is a large claim to make. Yeah. I think I was trying to avoid it in my yeah. talk, yeah, yeah. Um, and I wouldn't claim as much as equality, but partnership, right. Yeah. Um, their um, nurse training uh, became part of the mission panorama. Um, Harris, uh, which I mentioned throughout the talk, um, the, so the Johnston Hospital, which I just mentioned, was a, 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 another project of the Methodist Episcopal Women's Foreign Mission Society. Um, they at first employed uh, some Bible women in the hospital um, and you know, quickly decided they should provide some professional training for nurses to improve the quality of care they were able to provide. So Harris um, and the hospital cooked up a nursing school together, which became an important nursing school. Um, the missions developed nursing schools a little bit ahead of the colonial state. Um, you know, uh, I think maybe 1908 um, is when the University of the Philippines, is that right, Carly, um, opens its nursing programs, and uh, there were already a couple of mission-based nursing schools in existence. Um, uh, so yes, nurse training. Um, nurses were, there were one or two, um, given the moment, mission uh, nurses appointed from the U.S. in the hospital, which meant they were a real minority. The you know the staff that was really conducting that work um, were Filipino women, and they were trained and credentialed, and they formed a chapter of the International Council of Nurses and all that. Um, there were also physicians. Um, uh, um, they went. Uh, I know of a couple who went to study at um, what's now Drexel, so the Pennsylvania um, Women's Medical College. Um, and there were scholarships, including DAR scholarships, and also um, mission-based fundraising for uh, nurses and other Filipino women to study in the United States. Um, and I'm trying to track some of those um, individuals now for a later chapter, um, because mobility is certainly another thing that um, I find Filipino women gain um, from their affiliation with with missions, um, so they're sponsored for that as well. 
Um, again, the Johnston Hospital remained within the very firm control of uh, an American woman, Dr. Rebecca Parrish, um, for decades. So even though there were a uh, vast majority of Filipina women nurses on staff, and there were Filipina women physicians on staff, um, she directed that hospital. It's really only until the 1940s that I see a change in the leadership of the institutions as opposed to a partnership in the day-to-day um, -day work. Did that answer yeah, all the parts of your question? Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was also a gradual process and goes back to this sort of parallel track with the um, colonial state. So there, there were limits, and I am trying to be careful not to overclaim the extent to which there was a happy kumbaya sisterhood holding hands throughout the whole thing. So um, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about the challenge you started with, which is the archival source question. I mean, mm. I see you working here with, I mean, just talk about like what, what is that like for you? I struggle with it myself, as you yeah. know, I think a lot of us in this room have. So it seems to me like from your presentation that photographs have been a rich place to look. You've talked about yes. the missionary, um, the woman who is writing her own missionary newsletter, but then at the same time you have a lot of different denominations and yes. um, the publications. So just, and then now you're, then I'm also wondering about the colonial state, like what kind of, is it almost like you have too much because there's too many different places that you're looking or how would you just, I'd love to hear you talk about the research process. <laughs> too much of the wrong thing. <laughs> um, Yes, I mean, one can't do a project like this without being ready to do a lot of reading against the grain. Um, so that's, that's the best, most useful part of my training as a historian that I'm trying to, to use. Um, and um, to use visual sources when I find them, um, let's find a good one, to try to, I mean, again, even when um, women aren't named individually. Um, the photos in mission archives document their presence and the kind of work they're doing, um, even when the text does not. Um, so trying to pull out those, those meanings. Um, I, uh, the project started as an even bigger project. Um, I thought I was going to write a book about um, women and American imperialism uh, in the Caribbean and the Pacific. Um, encompassing many, many different kinds of, so as uh, teachers for the federal government, as nurses with the military, et cetera, et cetera, as journalists. Um, and um, I did finally come to my senses that I, um, I'm not the person who can get that done right now. Um, so I, I ended up focusing on, on missionaries. Maybe that's one way that it doesn't feel overwhelming to me because my original project was even larger. Um, but, uh, and I've also gone back and forth a lot about which um, denominations to look at. Um, right now, I'm committed to four um, because they had these separate women's missionary societies that I think make them distinct in terms of a, a gender ideology and a mission theory, um, a Methodist Episcopal, Congregationalist, Baptist, and Presbyterian. Um, and there is a lot, um, there, there, there are a lot of sources to read, but then there's also um, a lot missing. Um, I, I end up telling a lot the story of I was trying to trace the San Fernando School 
um, on this slide, uh, in, instead of being so based on Manila, um, I've been trying to look at schools in other places. And um, after a lot of asking and searching, I was doing research at Drew in the Methodist archives, and um, they finally um, helped me uh, by finding a folder. And it had about two sheets of paper in it for the San Fernando School. And um, when I opened it, it was uh, an inventory. It was basically an insurance claim um, listing all of the property damage that they had during World War II, um, including all their buildings, their library. And that's when I realized why I couldn't find their records. They'd been burned with the buildings. It was a living institution with living records at the time. Um, so yeah, sometimes it's a lot of records, but of the wrong kind. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the closer I get to a clear focus and question, the easier it is to go through. But I'm trying to collect everything, which is maybe why this has taken so long. Um, to help answer my, my questions. Um, I have found differences um, between denominations, among denominations as well. I started off doing research here at Houghton Library in the Congregationalist Archives. And um, even though that's where uh, Julia de Soto got mentioned, otherwise um, the Filipino women are very invisible in those records. I'm trying to find this shot. So I had to figure out um, that this is Isabel Mandig. She's not, not noted on the photo. Um, whereas the Methodist archives were much better at naming women. Um, and I don't want my research to end up being a report card for denominations on there. Um, attitude towards this. Uh, I'm resisting that, um, but I, I do want to think through more why those differences exist. Um, and also just being conscious that so much of the mission archive was created for promotional purposes. I mean, a lot of what I'm reading was directed at potential funders. Um, and so they want to claim a certain kind of success. They want to claim a certain kind of inclusivity, although that tells me something. Also, if they want to present themselves as being racially inclusive and that's going to raise funds, that suggests a different culture from the culture at large in the US in this period, which is like the nadir of race relations. We could talk for about another hour, I think, on this, on this question. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, Nazelle, for sharing more about different parts of this project. Um, so I was just wondering two things. Either one is interesting to you to answer. Um, do you still think of uh, this project, in spite of maybe the ambivalence of certain women or institutions, um, as falling within this idea of Christian imperialism? And if so, do you think that characterizes adequately like the entire time period that you're um, chronicling? And the second one is, I know in um, another part of this project, you talked about the funding sources mm. and how there was funding both from the US government, their domestic, um, organizations and churches at home or in the United States. Uh, there were places within the Filipino, the Filipino community that were also funding this. Yes. And there were outside corporations. Yes. And so I was wondering if you had found um, any differences in that or if certain places had more buy-in from certain groups than others um, and how the funding might have influenced the um, trajectory of the, the schools. Okay. Um, I, I'll start with the funding question, I guess, and try to be brief. So. Um, 
certain mission initiatives, I think, attracted more diverse funding than others. Um, so um, another chapter I've written uh, that Car Carly has read and given me great comments on um, is about the Johnston Hospital, um, which had uh, both corporate sponsors like Nestle, um, local Filipino legislature helped to support it. Um, the General Assembly um, uh, uh, voted appropriations of funding for that hospital. Um, the Women's Foreign Mission Society was supporting that hospital. It had many sources um, of, of funding and needed them all. Um, but I think it's because of the purpose of the hospital as a hospital that mission work in general um, didn't attract, I think it's an outlier in attracting such diverse um, funding. Certainly the Bible Women's Training Schools, um, it's really the, the, not even I'd say the denomination so much as the Women's Missionary Societies that cared so deeply for its success. Um, and uh, the, the directors and um, staff there did then try, and I think they largely succeeded, at getting some support from the communities that those Bible women then went to serve. Um, so it, it left out um, the corporate players and it left out the colonial state. So that varies according to the institution and the, the initiative. Um, but the women's missionary societies are always a prominent part of all of them. So that's the thread. Um, yes, and um, I'll try to be succinct also about, so, so Christian imperialism, um, which everyone talks, is talking about currently, um, uh, there's been a long debate about whether missionaries are cultural imperialists or not. Um, and uh, I think the answers to that are appropriately different depending on the time period we're looking at. Um, and the, the Christian imperialism that seems to typify early 19th century efforts um, had changed by the time that um, Protestants were going to the Philippines. Um, so I, I think of it as even a historical accident, like that just happens to be the moment that Protestant missionaries saw their opening and began their missions in the Philippines. And that moment happened to be a much more internationalist moment. Um, that's what set them at uh, more at odds with the imperial state than would have happened a generation before. Um, I also think that the decades of contact between American women and indigenous women at these other missions started to change thinking about what women's work for women even was. Um, and again, a favorite like snippet example I give is um, the women's missionary magazines when they were founded um, were, uh, had titles that we would regard as deeply offensive, like some of you who know them laugh, like Life and Light for Heathen Women. Um, uh, that got dropped. And I, again, I think that's reflective of a change within, like it's all called Women's Work for Women, but changes within that to be more and more inclined to see indigenous women as partners. So Life and Light for Women becomes Life and Light. Um, the woman's uh, missionary heathen friend um, becomes the woman's missionary friend, um, reflecting a shift in attitudes, all of which pre predate the founding of missions in the Philippines. Um, so I think because of that, um, we see more partnership from the beginning. And it's always easier to, 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 to practice that if it's there from the foundation, um, versus older missions in other parts of the world that had been founded with different preconceptions. Thank you, everyone. 
Um, oh, sorry. One more. Oh, hi, Anna. Hello. I'm thinking about the, the marriage, the marriages. Yes. I'm wondering if you saw evidence that daughters follow their mother's duties institutions. So if, would it be a second generation or a third generation of daughters from families that would be then sent to these schools? Mm, that's a great question. I'm going to have to look for that. Um, my my window, so I'm looking at about 40 years, um, but some of the schools grew so slowly, and some of them I don't have records for. Um, and some of them, well, I don't have complete records for any of them, frankly. Um, and some of them didn't grow at all, but um, that would be a great thing to look for. And uh, if, if, I, if I could, before I'm done with this project, um, I would do more even genealogical work um, and oral history um, to try to go back to, it's, it's like right on the cusp, right? So the women who graduated in the 1940s um, maybe are still ac accessible um, to try to trace that. I have seen in um, the, the histories that are produced of some of these institutions, references to families. Um, I haven't seen so much mother to daughter, but definitely family. So some of the, you know, women who married Christian converts, um, that their children, daughters and sons, are going to um, co-ed institutions like Silliman University in particular that um, people, uh, have, that has led to you know, more of a published history that I've been able to, to track. Um, and that answers that question again about like the, the continuities, um, whether the conversions were um, maintained and passed on. Thank you. May I ask one last question yeah. about the denominational differences? Sure. Um, that you suggested that the four denominations you chose, mm. and you chose them because they have women's organizations that are supporting and sending. Right. So, which um, gives us kind of both sides of the equation of the women's work for women. Um, does that mean that there are denominations, sending denominations, for whom women's work for women is not a, um, a kind of guiding principle, and that there are missions that are where this ideology is not um, being practiced, mm. and, and that seems to me like an important question because mm. you're suggesting that women's work for for women is an alternative ideology to a more colonialist model. Mm -hmm. So, are there some missions doing one thing and some doing another? Um, the the portrait of mission work as being primarily conducted by women, I think, holds true across denominations. Um, and I would even go as so far as to say that the idea of women's work for women, um, one can find throughout different enterprises. Um, some of them were ecumenical, and some of them were coming from different denominations than the four I'm researching. Um, but it's in the four I chose that I feel it's institutionalized. So it's not that it's absent from the others, it's that it's not institutionalized. Um, there's an, you know, many ecumenical groups, they look most like what we would call NGOs now, um, where again, women were dominant and their individual um, reflections and motivations also talk about essentially women's work for, for women. But um, it wasn't, um, 
you know, part of the official and in institutional language um, of those groups in the, in the same way. Um, so in figuring out, back to like the archives even, and what we can recover and do and write about, um, that's what has drawn me to these places, so schools, hospitals, um, where I can locate people and where I can locate people who maybe didn't leave records um, or, or even names. And I find it's these four denominations I've settled on that were also creating women's spaces and creating women's only institutions. Um, I find that idea of gender separatism and autonomy um, really interesting and really powerful and um, part of what needs to get talked about as, as permitting that alternative um, right, because the U.S. colonial government was also not creating um, sex-segregated institutions at this point in its history, um, and it seems like those offered the most opportunities for women to take on leadership roles, um, was that it was their own autonomous space. Um, that started to unravel uh, around this period and in the 1920s also. Um, uh, as the women's missionary associations lost their autonomy within church hierarchies. That's another part of the story um, that I need to tell. Um, but the women's work for women ethos, um, I'm at least in the Philippines, seem to have continued even after those organizations unraveled. And it's really because um, the schools and the hospitals and you know these, these concrete physical spaces ex existed. Thank you so much. Thank Lord. you. Thank you, everyone.